Uh, This reading we've had this morning comes from the book of Acts because we've been preaching through the book of Acts and this is where we're up to. Um, So we'll open up in prayer as we trust God uh, to work through our time together and to encourage us, to build us up and to make us more like his son. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can call upon you as our Father, that we were once formerly lost and without hope in this world because the nature of our rebellion against you separated us from you and put us in hostile hostility against you. We were by nature children of wrath. But in your great grace and mercy, you have sent Jesus who bore our punishment on our behalf that we can not only know peace with you, but a relationship with you now and a relationship for all eternity. Where when we see you face to face, the very things that we um, see in this world that are so broken and corrupt will be no longer, but we may be able to enjoy you and the things that you have given for us forevermore. We thank you that in your word you have declared to us what you have done, how you have built your church, and what you are calling your people to do as we walk in obedience with you. The good news of the gospel is not just what you've done to deal with our sin. The good news of the gospel is that we can know you, that we can live and walk with you each day. So encourage us, equip us, challenge and convict us by your word. Help me by your spirit to communicate clearly and help us all to receive and to respond rightly. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know how sometimes someone asks you to do something? Now, I was actually going to go all out and do it and bring in a box with a little handhold on the top and ask and actually invite you to have that experience of, do you trust someone who directs you to do something? Like imagine if I had a little box in here and I said, who wants to come up, put their hand into the box and take out whatever's in it? Now, if I was to do that, some of you would be excited because you just like the mystery of the unknown or you presume that I'm such a nice person there's going to be something worthwhile getting in there. But some of you are absolutely freaking out because you think Steve can be a bit of a prankster sometimes. It might be disgusting. It might be something I don't want to touch. The thing is, Most of you would think, I might want to put my hand in there if you tell me what's in there beforehand. Like you'll only trust my direction if I give you the big picture of what to expect. But sometimes you just can't know. You've got to make a decision based upon what you know about the person who's calling you to do something, based upon their character, will I trust the things that they are leading me to do? When God leads his people, it's not always clear. He doesn't always give the big picture of, I want you to go here, and this is the reason why, and this is what will happen. The passage that we've just had read, we've seen the way God leads his people by just leading them in little small steps, each of which seem quite insignificant on their own. 
But because we know his character, because we know he is always good, even though he may not give us the big grand picture and all of the details and how it's going to work out, we can trust him when he says, here is the next step. In our passage, the leading's not clear. But the only way that they could see the very good plan of God was through trusting and obeying the individual small steps that God laid before his people. We've been working our way through the book of Acts where we've seen the beginnings and the rapid growth of the early Christian church. We know famously Jesus gave a mission to his church to go make disciples, baptising in the name of the Father and the Son and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you and promises his presence with his people. A similar commission is given in the book of Acts. We've repeated many times in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when my spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And right from Pentecost and other things that have proceeded in the chapters afterwards, we've seen massive growth in the church from what was initially a group of 120 people gathered to now we're well abundantly beyond 10,000 people. But last week we saw the very first step of that progress of that mission when Jesus said it would start at Jerusalem, it would go out to all Judea and Samaria. The gospel went to Samaria last week. And you think, if I was going to plan it, it probably would have happened in a different way. It didn't really go by the most normal means that we might consider. So far, predominantly, most of the ministry has been the work of the apostles, them preaching the gospel to a large audience. But we see that as a result of Stephen being stoned for proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfilment of all of the Old Testament hope, All of the church was scattered. All of the Christians, they leave, they flee. Except the apostles who remain behind. And to the public eye, it looks like Christianity is under threat of extinction. Christians have all fled. The apostles have stayed behind. We saw last week, Paul is going door to door, arresting anyone who names Jesus Christ. You think it's about to come to an end. But what we've been reminded is where God's people go, the gospel goes. The people who have fled, we read about this in verse 4. Now those who were scattered, which was the everyday Christians, not the apostles, went about preaching the word. The apostles didn't tell them, we're staying behind, therefore you must go do this. It was out of the natural identity of who they were as a follower of Jesus Christ they proclaimed the good news about Jesus. We said that this word preaching doesn't have to mean like a person standing before a large crowd giving a sermon. It just means to tell of the good news. And I put it to you last week that we are by nature a good news telling people, Christian or not. If people have good news, we talk about it. Someone has a new baby, you can't shut them up about it. They're showing you pictures left, right and centre. They've just been away on a holiday. They want to show you every single photo they've ever done. We are a good news-sharing people. How much more 
should followers of Jesus Christ who have the good est, I just made a word possibly, news, be a good news sharing people. It's worth noting that these people who went around sharing about Jesus, they've never been to Bible college. They probably even haven't been a Christian for a particularly long period of time. But what they did knew, they shared. And the result was that many more came to trust in Jesus and were baptised. We've seen throughout the book of Acts, and we'll see more and more of it, ministry is not the work of paid professionals only. After all, if the only people who could be effective ministers were paid professionals, the majority of you probably wouldn't be in this room. I'm not going to take the hands of those who came to faith because a pastor or a paid minister did something. But I imagine the majority of you came to faith because somebody you know shared the gospel with you. So in that sense, we're all called to be gospel ministers. It's not the only thing that we are, but it's something that we all call, it's part of our identity of followers of Jesus. But not only are we called, but we are all qualified because the one who has called us to himself is the one who's telling us to go share, promising that he has all authority and that his presence goes with us. And we're also qualified because we need to be reminded that salvation doesn't happen from us. It's entirely external. God is the one who does the saving. Our role is purely to tell someone about what God has done in Christ to achieve salvation. But the actual saving is the work of God himself. In that sense, anyone who is a follower of Jesus can do this. And this is important to understand Acts chapter 8. Because as you started the chapter, you could easily think, oh no, the gospel's never going to go to Judea and Samaria because the apostles, they're the ones who preach the word faithfully and it goes out and people respond. And here's Paul going door to door. They're going to come to an end pretty soon. No, every day people scattered and shared the good news of the gospel. I mean, after all, the apostles don't have a better gospel than you and I do. They don't have a bigger or better God than you and I do. They don't have a a bigger amount of the Holy Spirit than you and I do. And for this very same reason, when we read through this part of Acts chapter 8, we shouldn't be concerned that Philip is being directed somewhere else. Even though we might start to think, well, Philip's just got something going here. God was pleased to send him somewhere else. And he doesn't need Philip to do his work in Samaria. So today, as we look at verses 26 to 29, we're looking at the God who leads into the unknown. Verses 30 to 39, obedience, which leads to joy. And in the final verse, keep moving, keep gospeling, or potentially made up another word. Now, we've considered the idea of of trusting Steve's leading, putting your hand into a box and seeing what Steve has to offer. And I did have all sorts of ideas. Some of them were good and some of them weren't so attractive that that I could have done there. But what about God's leading? How do you get any sense of what is God's leading? What do you do sometimes when something comes into your mind, it just comes to your mind? Do you naturally presume, oh, that must be God because it came to my mind, I wasn't thinking about it? Well, 
that could be a little bit silly. Now, if you knew some of the things that just come into my mind without thinking about them, if I acted on them, you'd swear I'm a lunatic. In some sense, I think it's probably easier to determine what's not God's leading than it is to determine what is God's leading. Because we've got a pretty clear-cut standard by which we can say that's definitely not God's leading. If it is opposed to what God has made clearly known in his word, what is revealed of his character and his will, if what popped into your mind does not match up with that, I can guarantee you without a doubt, I'm not going to argue with it, that is not God's will, no matter how strongly you might feel about it. But what about if we do weigh it up and it all kind of it's not opposed to God's character, what he has called us to do? Do we automatically presume it's God's will? Do we automatically just do it in case it is, in, just so that we don't do the wrong thing? Now, I've heard some pretty strange stories that have been sermon illustrations that sometimes you wonder, true story, urban myth you don't know. Hey, whereas someone's believes that God has told them to do something which seems quite idiotic, but it's, it's not contrary to God's plan. They do it and somehow it gets worked together and it works to God's good purposes. Now, as I say, sometimes you, you think, that's a fantastic story. I wish I knew the person to know whether it was truth or it's just a made-up story for good effect. But I wonder sometimes, can we only determine what is actually God's will after the fact? Because just because something comes to your mind, it's not opposed to God's character and will, doesn't necessarily mean that God is leaving you. It's maybe not until after the fact that you see how God has used it. You can say, yes, that was God's leading, that was God's will. In our passage we begin this morning, Philip has an angel of the Lord come to him and says, go south to the desert between Jerusalem and Gaza. And it's easy to ask a question here, why? Things are really starting to get going here in Samaria. Philip's having a wonderful impact, a great ministry. And now he's been taken somewhere else to a desert area between Jerusalem and Gaza. Surely God could, if he really wants to do something, sure he can send someone else. Philip's, Philip's the only person in the Bible who is actually called and described as being an evangelist. Sometimes it's like when you're in a church and you, you've got someone you're raising up for a particular role in ministry or leadership and then it just seems to go completely against the grain. By circumstances they move somewhere else because of their work or they go to another church or another ministry and we think, God, what are you doing? It just doesn't seem to me to make sense. But I love Philip's response. Philip just goes. Remember, God didn't say, I want you to go to this area and you'll meet an Ethiopian and he's going to be reading Isaiah and then you're going to explain to him, then he's going to come to faith, then you're going to baptise him. That's not what God says. God says, I want you to go to this place, which by its description, nothing sounds attractive at all. It reminds me a lot of Abraham. who's told, leave your family and go somewhere that I will show you. No more details given than that. And Abraham went. Philip and Abraham don't ask questions. 
They don't know, they're not leaving because they know the value of the end goal. They move because they know who the God is who's calling them. They don't know specifically where they're going or specifically what they're doing. But they know who is with them and that is enough. They know God is calling, that's enough. If it's God, that's enough, that's all I need to know. As he, Philip heads down to this area, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch who, according to a description, obviously has some interest in Judaism. He's just coming back from Jerusalem where he's been there to worship. But what else do we know about him? Well, by being by nature a eunuch, meaning he's been castrated, there would be limitations in terms of his access within the temple because of that. We're told here that he's probably a treasurer for the Ethiopian queen looking after the, the temple jewel, uh, after her jewels. But you could easily think Ethiopian, therefore Gentile. But when you read through the book of Acts, Luke seems to indicate very clearly that Cornelius is the first of the Gentiles. So he certainly has either genetically or religiously some connection to Judaism. And he's a man of considerable means, not only because of his position within, with the Ethiopian queen, but just to be able to, to be taking a chariot that sort of length of distance and to have a copy of Isaiah. I don't know if he has, had more of the scriptures for himself. It's not like you just go down to Kurong and you go and buy one. was a man of significant means. But at this point in time, all God has said, go here. So what comes next? Well, obedience leads to joy. There's a lot of times where we wish God would give us a lot more detail when he leads. We wish God would just lay it all out, tell us each step along the way so that we can see it's worth pursuing and then make a decision. But regularly, not just here, but throughout the Bible, often when God leads his people, he just shows them enough for the next steps. Even speaking of God's word itself, the psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God shows us what we need to do for the next steps. Now there's part of us that likes to have a sense of control. Now we like to know what it's all about. We like to know what we're doing. But isn't that something that belongs to our old nature? That we want to be the one who decides what we do. We want to be the ultimate authority. God doesn't leave Philip wondering what's next. He shows him yet another step just a bit further in advance. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now if this was you and I, you'd probably be inclined to ask, come on, just a little bit more detail. You've sent me to a place, now you say, it's just like you're saying, go over to this car. But again, without knowing all of the details, not only does Philip go, it says Philip ran to the chariot. And as he approaches, he hears the man who's reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, it was common in the first century that people would read things aloud, which would save you bundles on audio books. You'd just sit next to someone else who's reading a book. 
And he's reading from Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8. Well, that's the part that gets quoted in the book of Acts, which is part of that famous servant song of Isaiah 52 and 53, which we read, have it read all the time, particularly around Easter. Because even though it's written at least 700 years before Jesus, it describes in such great detail Jesus and his nature of the way in which he suffered and died to pay for the sins of others. But while we so naturally associate these passages with Jesus, there's absolutely no evidence as you read through the Gospels that anyone in Judaism understood the passage in that way. That no one thought of this passage or thought of a Messiah as being a Messiah who would suffer and die. Now while they had many different theories about what it would look like, none of them looked like the way in which Jesus and the New Testament writers described it. Jesus quoted from this, this prophecy in Isaiah and applied it to himself in Luke twenty two thirty seven. So he made it very clear, this is speaking of me. John, Paul and Peter all quote this passage with regards to Jesus. Now Philip, who's probably familiar with the text and has probably recently come to understand its fullest meaning, either from Jesus himself or through the other apostles, asked the man, do you know what you're reading? And I don't think there's any reason to think that he's being belittling or rude as though, well, do you know what you're reading? But you know how sometimes you come to understand something more clearly and all of a sudden you're really keen to pass that on? And as Philip has come to understand the full meaning of this text, he's probably saying, do you know what this is about? And the response of the Ethiopian is, is an important insight. He says, how can I, unless somebody guides me, and he invites Philip up to come and sit with him? He's like, I don't get it. How could I? I need somebody to guide me. And he clearly wants somebody to guide him because he invites Philip up onto the chariot with him. And part of you could ask, does this mean the Bible is really incomprehensible? Is it, is it saying that the Bible can't be understood by anyone? Well, the basic message of the Bible is clear. Anyone can read it and understand the events that are going on. But there's also the aspect in which Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the, the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. But sensing that Philip's got some degree of insight... <laughs> Into this passage, he invites him onto the chariot because he wants someone to guide him. Now, I would imagine there are many people in our circles in which we mix, whether they're neighbourhoods, workplaces, hobbies, whatever it is, who sense that there's something about this Jesus and who actually would be interested in pursuing that. McCrindle Research did a research poll thing of people who are unchurched and it came up with the statistics that 10% of people asked, would you be interested in learning more about Christianity? 10% said definitely yes. Now, while we can very clearly see there's 90% who don't want to, in a definite sense, one in 10 said they would be interested in learning more about Christianity. In Australia, unchurched people. That same survey found out that those who are in Gen Y, we've got another one in 10, 
within those who are Gen Y, only one out of ten Gen Y people actually know someone who is a Christian. Now, sometimes you hear these sort of statistics and you think, oh, yeah, it's probably one of these research from America from the 90s. This is research from Australia from 2018. There are people in our country, one in ten, who would definitely like to learn more about Christianity. There are people who have the desire but either have lack of access to guides who can explain to them the things about Jesus. That should encourage us in our mission that God has given us that one in ten is pretty good. I'd love to hear one in two, but one in ten, I think probably if I asked you what those statistics you thought would be, I don't think you would have thought one in ten, you probably would have said one in a hundred. But as we find these people, it might be as simple as opening up one of the Gospels and guiding them through it. For the Ethiopian, what he quoted was Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Where he says, in the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. When you think about the bigger picture of Isaiah 52 and 53, you think, it's strange that's the bit that gets quoted. Because there's some really wonderful stuff in the verses surrounding both before it and both after it. Here it talks about someone who died. No no language here of a, a death on behalf of others, just that one who has died... And he died unjustly. The Ethiopian asked the question, who's he speaking about? Is this speaking about himself or somebody else? Well, if he's speaking about himself, then he must be doing so in a future sense because he's talking about his life being taken away. We all learned that lesson in primary school that you can't write a story in first person where you die and then you continue writing about what you did afterwards or, or describing events afterwards. But in the wider context, when you read all of Isaiah 52 and 53, the things that are described could only be applied to one person in history. They couldn't ever be applied to anyone else, but only to Jesus. But even though this man has asked, who is he speaking about? Philip, who could have said, oh, he's talking about Jesus and kept going. Philip's response was, beginning with these verses, he explained to him the good news about Jesus. So this guy just wants to know about who's writing about and he begins here and he speaks to him the good news about Jesus. Now remember last year when we did an overview of the Bible called His Story, we saw that all parts of the scripture point to Jesus. And so in that sense, if all of it points to Jesus, it should be easy to start at any point and speak about the good news of Jesus. Now the particular passage that Philip's dealing with is quite easy to, as to where to go to because in the surrounding verses, say for example in verses 4 to 6, we see a very clear description of Jesus' death on behalf of others saying, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have turned everyone his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It couldn't be clear that this death was a death for the sins of people other than him that brings peace and healing to someone other than themselves. But much of the apostolic teaching in, in the book of Acts speaks on the resurrection. You just need to go to the, the bit after what was already quoted in verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So as the one who is sacrificed will see beyond, he will see the offspring, he will see those who come to life because of his death on their behalf. So we don't have details about what Philip did share with his man, but he literally didn't need to go that far to be able to present the good news of what Jesus has done. Luke's account, while it might be brief, we can presume that he gave a very good account of the gospel. An account of the gospel of not just what Jesus has done to deal with our sin, but how the gospel pertains to life now and beyond. Why do I make a statement like that? Because the next thing that we read here in verse 36, as they were going along the road, he came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptised? So the gospel, this good news that, that Philip has presented to him, is not just what God has done in Christ to do with our sin, but what it is good news to live in relationship with him. What we do is good news in response to him. As Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, speaks about the gospel in which you were saved, by which we stand and by which we are being saved. The gospel is not just our one-off conversion, it's by which we live. It's good news for us today, it's good news for our future. And so the gospel that was proclaimed to him was a gospel that included a reference to baptism as being a response now, as each of you look around at your Bibles, some of you are thinking, where's verse 37? I haven't got it. If you've got a King James or a New King James, you have got it. If you've got another translation, you might have a footnote about a verse 37. Some of the earlier manuscripts don't, don't have this content where, where it's got Philip questioning him. Do you really believe this? Like he's kind of making sure he makes a confession of faith before he baptises him. Whether this actually happened or not, we it's not a big issue. But immediately, this man is baptised in front of all the other people who are on the chariot there going along with him as he shows in a public sense his commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, this guy just believes. Just come to faith in Jesus and you think, you know what this guy needs? He needs Philip to go back with him and start a really big, strong ministry back in Ethiopia. But God's plan is the Spirit carried Philip away and the Ethiopians saw him no more. And you could start to think, God, how, that's not the best plan. This guy's only just come to faith. 
Why don't you send Philip? Why, why send Philip somewhere else? Where it says the Spirit carried Philip away doesn't necessarily mean that he was zapped away. It may just mean that the Spirit led him away. But you think, why? Why not send Philip back with him? And it's surprising the amount of countries, particularly in India, but some African nations, where people come to faith, they're given a bike, a stack of Bibles, and they go off and start a church. And are they really struggling for, uh, for training and equipping of their leaders? I don't know whether it's um, historically true or not, but Irenaeus, who was a second century Christian writer, when he's recounting these events, says, this man was also sent to the regions of Ethiopia so to preach what he himself had believed. So if that is true, that Irenaeus records that this guy did go back and just as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, as he went, as God's people went, so went the gospel. So I can't verify whether that's a factual event or not. It certainly sounds true. Because throughout the Bible we see God's people who he calls are also the same people who he sends. What we can know for sure is the Ethiopian returns rejoicing. That he has heard the good news of the gospel. What Jesus has done to deal with our sin, to give us peace with God. All because Philip trusted the leading of God. Little steps. One, go here. Secondly, go to a chariot. He guided him to understand the scriptures. This man was saved, and if we can believe Irenaeus, he goes back and we see the gospel multiplying back in Ethiopia. Now, I've got no doubt Philip returned with joy as well. I mean, after all, Jesus says, if you obey my words, you'll have joy and joy in the fullness. But Philip's not a guy who has such a thing as an unfruitful commute where he's just twiddling his thumbs, listening to a few podcasts while he's trying to go somewhere else. Where he keeps moving, he keeps gospeling. As Philip returns, where the Christians go, the gospel goes. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all of the towns until he came to Caesarea. Every single place he goes. He doesn't know where God's leading, what God has got next. But wherever he is, what he does is he's faithfully obedient to what he knows God has called him to, to speak about the good news of Jesus. Sometimes we think about knowing God's will or living according to God's will only in terms of big things, like which job am I going to do? Where am I going to live? Am I going to get married? All of these things. Trusting and living God's will often means doing what God has revealed to be his will where you already are. And he's made abundant, a lot of things clear. What are his will for you wherever you are at this point in time? Sometimes you read passages like this and you go, wow. I wish I had encounters like this. I wish I had stories like this that I could tell people about how God led me here to do this. People came to trust in Jesus. Questions of, oh, I wish God would lead me like this. Then we start to ask, has God led me? How do I know? Have I missed it? You know what I think? I think sometimes our 
idea of what God's leading might look like is for God to give us such a big, grand picture with all of the details, with the end goal described that seems so marvellous, so spectacular that we are so in awe and we think, oh, that's God's leading. But when you look at this passage and as you look at the way in which God leads his people throughout the scriptures, it's often small, unimpressive steps which God lays before his people. Like if I said to you, man, I want to tell you about the way in which God led me. He said to me, Steve, I want you to go to Pilton. Who's going to be impressed? But that doesn't that sound very similar to the beginning of God's leading for Philip? I want you to go to this place between Jerusalem and Gaza, an area which is a desert place. What if I said, I impress you with this one? God told me, to walk up to a car. Doesn't sound particularly impressive, does it? But this is the types of things that are being described in this passage. It was only as Philip trusted God in these little things that the big picture of God's purpose came to fruition. Had Philip just thought, I had said a crazy idea to go to the desert, things are going pretty good here in Samaria, I'll just stay here these events wouldn't have transpired. Now, I'd be very surprised if all of you here, when praying or reading your Bible, have never had an experience where either God has laid a particular person on your heart or you've had a thought of, maybe I should do this, maybe I should join this. And at the time, you might think, well, God's laid in my heart, maybe I'll pray about it, pray about that person. Or maybe you think, not much of it. You think, ah, this is me. I'm always distracted when I'm praying. I can't concentrate. But I'll ask you, what do you do with some of these things? Now, when you're you're praying and reading God's word, if God lays a particular person on your heart or a particular idea or to go to something or to go to someone, what do you do? Do you even pray about them? Do you think maybe this thing's come to my mind, maybe I should pray about it? Do you actually take action? Do you think maybe, I don't know it's God's will, but maybe God's wanted me to talk to this person? I wouldn't be so bold to say, you came to my mind, therefore I'm saying, God told me to come talk to you. But you might be, I was just praying, when I was praying, you were laid on my heart, I just thought I'd come talk to you. Is there anything I can help help you with? Have we done something? Have we ignored it as a silly thought or just had good intention thought, yeah, I really should do something about that and then you forget. We're good at forgetting. Can I trust, urge you to trust God in little things? Now, I'll, these steps which God lays before Philip, they're unimpressive. But they serve part of a bigger plan and it was only by Philip trusting God in the little things without seeing the end goal that God took him towards bigger things. I would rather do something and realise it was unnecessary than miss out on being part of what might be God's plan. As I said, if it's contrary to his character, just laugh it off and it's like, you had a silly thought. But maybe these things that God lays on our heart and our mind as we're praying and reading his word might be that first, unimpressive-looking first step 
towards a big, bigger purpose that God has that we will only see if we trust him in the little steps along the way. So I'd encourage you as we have our lunchtime together, if you've had a time like that where through a series of just small little promptings, God has led you towards a conversation or something that was quite significant, to share that with one another. But before I wrap up, I actually want us to have a time where we come before God in prayer. Uh, If God has put someone or something on your mind or even ask. And if he does lay something or someone on your mind, uh, that your next prayer would be, where to, where do I take this? And that we would go on to act on these things. Let's have a time of quiet time of prayer where we are, then I'll close this off. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word and in your word you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, we thank you that we have a standard by which we can um, rule out some of the strange thoughts that come to our mind that has been clearly not from you and therefore we can treat them as such. But Lord, that you are, we thank you too that you are a God who still guides and directs your people. We thank you that we live in a country despite what we see around us. The statistics show us there are still one in ten of unchurched people who are very interested to know more about the Christian faith and why Jesus is good news. Lord, we pray that we'd be encouraged as we are led to and we find some of those people and that it would be our privilege to be the one who guides them with your scripture. That you would save them, that you would open their eyes to see the wonderful good news of the gospel. That you would call them to yourself. Lord, that we would see many more in our towns, but also around the world, come to trust in Jesus. So guide us and help us to be obedient in the small things. In Jesus' name, amen.